0: today our theme is the future of England's churches and we're focusing particularly on the 16,000 or so Anglican parish buildings in use up and down the country. Clergy don't need reminding what a preoccupation looking after church buildings can be. In their task, parishes are assisted by the Council for the Care of Churches, a body set up by the General Synod, which has been chaired since 2003 by Graham Knowles, the Dean of St Paul's. Uh, Before moving to London last year, he was the Bishop of Sodor and Mann, and before that, the Dean of Carlisle. Sir Roy Strong was director of the Victoria and Albert Museum for 13 years until 1987, since when he has been widely known as a broadcaster and an author. Most particularly for our purposes today, and most recently, he has published A Little History of the English Country Church. In that book, he argues that we need to radically rethink our use of country church buildings if we are to preserve this invaluable heritage. Sir Roy.
1: I pressed the magic button, so you ought to be able to hear me. Um, Well, this is the fourth time I've appeared in this particular pulpit. I think on previous occasions for dialogues and once to read a lesson, and now I'm here for a debate well I can't speak about urban churches which my colleague the Dean of St Pauls will be discussing but my concern has been about the 10,000 rural churches, many of which are beautiful, and medieval and later and half of which, well, if one has to be absolutely brutal, are not needed whatsoever. And I speak as somebody who, lived on, who lives and has lived for over 30 years on the Welsh borders in Herefordshire, uh, the diocese has Hereford has some 400 churches, and one could hazard a guess that 200 are not needed at all. Uh, And I also speak as somebody who has um, both enjoyed and, might I say, largely endured what it is like to go to to many services in the country. Indeed, in one church, I can remember I was a sprig of youth in my 60th year, and I looked at the congregation and I thought, now I know there is life after death any rate, since my youth, I'm a post-war child, brought up on the myths of England, I suppose, that sustained us through the Second World War. And those churches are icons to us, or these are icons to me, whether they are to anybody below 40 or 30, I don't know. They were revered by people like Alec Clifton Taylor, John Betjeman, of course, Nicholas Pefsner, Simon Jenkins. Um, but reverence an admiration and an occasional visit to inspect the antiquities doesn't keep a church building going. A church building is kept going not only by money but by human beings and something happening there. I don't think you can really justify a church in the country being kept going for it being open once a month for five old ladies to receive communion, however worthy that is. The truth of the matter is that we're maintaining the built infras- ecclesiastical infrastructure of rural England, pre industrial England, really before 1800. I mean, in 1800, about 80% of the population was in the country and 20% in the towns. By 1900, that figure had been reversed. And probably it's much worse now, probably 15% of the population in the country. I don't know. But there you are. No one uh, within the Church of England has really faced up to sorting that out, out, not even the a Victorian episcopate who really ought to to have reformed the parish system, Um, but they didn't, so that in fact we're lumbered with something which should have been thought about and acted upon a very long time ago. But then, devoted Anglican, uh, Anglican though I am, there is something terribly gutless about the Anglican Church reaching a decision about absolutely anything at all, which is part of its charm. I feel very strongly about clergy in the country who are asked to look after seven, eight, ten, fifteen churches. One knows too many stories of complete burnout. I mean, no other profession would put up with such an appalling uh, load landed around their necks. You have to look at these churches in the context of what else has happened within society. Most of them are located either in the middle of the village or on the outskirts. If you look at the village, the shop's gone, the school's gone, the post office is gone, the baker is gone, uh, the doctor's gone, the pub's gone, everything's gone, and there's this one old building somewhere in the middle or on the periphery uh, with its uh, space around the tombs. Well, what's going to happen to it? Can't go on. You can't go on like that. And it's a kind of ridiculous situation. Now, we're in a new century. We're in the 21st century. I had a great deal to do in the 1970s when I became director of the v with what I call the Heritage Decade. The first show I put in was called The Destruction of the Country House, then we followed it with Churches, Change and Decay, and then in '79, the year that Thatcher came in on gardens. Well, we've had those shows, I'm immodest enough to say, in this building were landmarks. The churches and the country, uh, the, the country houses and the gardens, we've had no problems with since because the torch was taken up. We've not had a crisis about it. We've not had a crisis about garden. Uh, the studies of them taken off in academe, uh, the restoration, uh, opening them up to the public, all sorts of things have happened around that, but the church, all right, there were various county trusts started up, but really the torch was not taken up. I mean, what uh, I was going to say, when one speaks as a Christian, and what is Christianity about? It's about change, changing oneself, changing everything. And why I wrote the book, I thought, people are enormously resistant to change. The church inside always changed. It changed through the centuries in response to both to government diktat, as with the Reformation, or to spiritual re- renewal, as with the Oxford movement. If you don't allow a building to change, you, in fact, kill it off. People don't like change. They're worried about it. Aunt Maud embroidered the hassock. Granny sat in the pew over there, some dreadful 1840s thing I'd cheerfully burn. Surely, to me, those words of the late 20th century, conservation, heritage, preservation, they are the words that came up from William Morris at the end of the 19th century. They were important, one owes a lot to them. In a modest way, I hope I've contributed to all of them. But we're now in a new century. And they're negative words in a way, they're passive, they don't move things on. Adaptability, for which I'm an ardent apostle, is I think really the key to where we're going to go. It doesn't mean to say that every church can be adapted and have a life, some I would be happy to see as picturesque ruins, some as dwelling houses, I don't know. I curse in the year 2000, the Lottery Fund having given grants to village halls. The village hall was the church in times past, it was the only secure building with the hovels as it were and cottages which we romanticised, nestled around it, and in the church happened festivities, legal proceedings, uh, schools, all sorts of things happened within the church building which we need to recapture. Well we need to change the interiors of churches and give them new life, not only to respond to the changes in liturgy, but I think that we need, and also we must remember you're never going to go back to the age when people went to church, and it's a myth that they all did anyway. I mean you can go to church on television, on radio, I suppose to the iPod, or or on the net or whatever, it's a a very different thing. And the pattern of church going has dramatically changed. We're moving back to centres of excellence. So people go to the cathedrals and to the greater churches where there's good liturgy, welcome, music, and where people can feel anonymous. I mean, you try going into a country church where there's 15 worshippers. Every eye turns round at you as you arrive, as though you're some sinister (laughs) presence that's going to stop them using the Book of Common Prayer. (laughs) Well, there we are. Um, Do remember parish churches. You know, everybody thinks of them very old, but they're not that old. I mean, the first 800 or more years of Christianity did without the parish church. The parish church is basically a creation of the 12th, 13th century. You can't keep those buildings, much loved as they are, without two things, money and a function and a purpose in relation to the people that live around them. I don't want to erode their place. I think they occupy something very special. That in the middle of any community, although all these things have gone, here is this patch of sacred land. Even if you aren't a believer, you notice instinctively, like in that beautiful lark in poem called Church Going, you cross into the churchyard and into the church, and, and, and people are, are in, instinctively feel a stillness, a reverence, a pool of calm. And it's the roots of a community. Through the accumulated memorials in the church and the churchyard, so I think that is something very precious to hold on to. So, in my view, the 21st century, as far as the rural church uh, is concerned, is really facing up to change, facing up to some things may go, uh, and some things may take on a very different life. I don't see any anything wrong with pews going in the right place. uh, The church can recolonize it, you can hold a farmer's market there, I don't mind yoga classes, I don't mind line dancing, I don't mind practically anything within reason. Um, But it keeps it it going, and it could be a great bridgehead building between the believing and the non-believing community. I'm an optimist. I think to get the debate going, that's all. I, I broke a contract to write this book because I felt it needed to be written. And I'm not bad antennae, because the week that it appeared, the Vicar of Ambridge wanted to take the pews out. And I thought, I've hit the jackpot. (laughs) (laughs) But I do believe in stirring things up. And one way, another way of stirring things up is the uh, competition which country life is running. And the Mercer's Company, dare I mention them in the presence of the grocers, is most gentry. (laughs) Well, never mind. You could do something, too. the Mercer's Company is sponsoring a competition with Country Life, which I'm deeply involved in and committed, which is, uh, for three years, to run a competition with the first and second prize to the village community that comes together. It's called the Village Church for Village Life. And we're hoping to get out of that, and the awards will be given in Westminster Abbey. And the idea is that out of that, we'll produce six contrasting role models of what might happen to our beloved churches in the countryside. Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: I have a heathen friend who lives in Froome. He just about copes with the fact that he has a friend who is in priestly orders. He quite likes taking me out to visit Somerset. The thing I hate about it is that he insists on going armed with Simon Jenkins' book. (laughs) It's tucked under his arm. It's on the back seat of the car wherever he goes. And sadly, he believes everything that Mr. Jenkins writes about any church that he visits. Luckily enough, I've actually been able to persuade him to open his own eyes and to read the building for himself rather than to indulge in Mr Jenkins' prejudices. But the interesting thing is that he has the book and wouldn't be without it. And as I said, he is a fully signed up heathen. There's something that has happened at the end of the last century and into this, which has struck a chord in the people of this nation, which has made them start to visit churches again. It is of course a complete myth that our churches in some golden age were all open and ready to be visited. For those of you like myself who are addicted to uh, the diary, you will discover that in the 18th and 19th century the visitor always had to go and find the parish clerk in order to find the key. Having found the parish clerk, the parish clerk then had to find the key which often meant that he did not visit, the visitor did not visit the church. We are therefore in an extraordinarily new situation as far as our buildings are concerned. There is an intense interest in them. But that interest often comes from the chicken in aspic approach to our ecclesiastical heritage. Somehow we leave our minds behind when we get to the door and believe that this building has dropped from heaven exactly as it is. That somehow there hasn't been a process by which this building has come to look as it does today. Think of the very building we're in at the moment. Most people coming to visit this building would simply believe that this building had always looked like this. This is what Wren built, surely. Most of us know that it isn't at all. It's a complete rebuild, the interior is completely different. The building has grown and has accumulated over the years that which each generation has wanted for it. This debate could in fact fall flat on its face because most of what Sir Roy has said I heartily agree with. But one thing that I want to develop a little more is this whole business of the buildings that we inherit as Church of England. They are, after all, the only bits of our heritage, and I think I'm fairly safe in saying this, that are still in the same use for which they were built. If you happen to be um, an English Duke, yes you'll probably still live in your castle or your stately home, but you'll live in a flat in the service wing. You won't actually live in the staterooms. If you're a soldier, you might occasionally visit the Tower of London. You might put your uniform on and march around a bit. But you won't actually expect the Tower of London to do the business of guarding the city. And yet our churches, our parish churches, are still used for the worship of Almighty God. In a completely different way in most of them. But they are still there. Sir Roy asked what faith what the church was about. I would want to say that the church is about incarnation and that's actually revealing God about his work out in his world. I think I'm one of those old-fashioned creatures that would defend the parochial system to the last of the barricades When the revolution comes, I shall probably be one of the first to be shot, but there we are. But that's a barricade that I will go to. Because it actually means that every single person living in this country, whether they like it or not, actually have a parish church which is theirs, that to which they can look. And in that sense, I would support the system which keeps a parish church in each of our parishes. I served some of my ministry in the Diocese of Carlisle and was chairman of the Diocesan Advisory Committee. It would often take two and a half hours to drive to do a DAC visit. Often you met more sheep than you did people, but eventually you came to a parish church apparently in the middle of nowhere. There would be waiting for you three farmers. All of them in the graveyard could trace all their relations on both sides and would point out the various graves. If they didn't you would catch up on their names and look afterwards and there they would be. The parish church was the embodiment of community. It was the embodiment of incarnation. It was the fact of God being there and being recognised in community. I think I want to put to you today that it is not our rural churches which are at risk. Strangely, I think the world in which we live will see more and more city and town dwellers moving out into the countryside. Those of us who have learnt to use our computers in middle to late age are now in the minority. Lots of people work from home and given the choice, they will move into the countryside to work from home. Our communities will suddenly have within them those people who are able to support and help and keep going our buildings. If I'm to gaze into my decanal crystal ball, I think I would say that the churches at risk in the middle and end of this century are those in our urban and suburban areas. Where you will find the middle class living at the moment, those who will keep their buildings going, they will move further and further out. And what does that mean for us? It means that a large number of quite spectacular 19th and 20th century buildings will suddenly find themselves without the wherewithal to keep themselves going. And we're beginning to see that already. I've been working in the world of the Council for the Care of Churches now and for DACs for about 30 years. Every year has been the year in which, let's say the Diocese of Manchester would announce mass redundancy. And every year it doesn't happen. And every year we say, well, it'll be next year. The Diocese of London will announce 40 redundancies it doesn't happen what about the diocese of liverpool let's go and do a visit we do we make a list and nothing happens i've got a feeling that our parish churches are much more embedded in the psyche of those of us who live in this country than we actually realize that people will actually work for their buildings But I think, as I have said, that we will face, as this century progresses, more and more problems in our urban and suburban areas. Our buildings, too, have never been in such a good condition as they are at the moment. And I say that as an ex-archdeacon. It might seem odd as you travel around the country and see some of our buildings looking a bit tatty. But take them as a general rule, and you will see buildings in good order. I would agree with Sir Roy entirely that we are prey to the preservationist, the conservationist, all those other words. Those who actually do want simply to take our buildings and like Simon Jenkins, turn them into museums to Christianity, because after all, Christianity is dead, isn't it? I think the church's task is to bite back and say, no, Christianity isn't dead. There are people worshipping this church. They might be five old ladies. I can tell the story that I started my ministry in Broadstairs, and every year we said that we would close Matins down the next year, because by then a good third of the congregation would have died. A third of the congregation did die, and God in his infinite love and mercy sent another 70 elderly people to fill up the places of the people that had died <laughs> there is always there is always that continuity of people coming through the church I would want to say too that I will stand shoulder to shoulder with Saroy in his wonderful use of the word adaptability there was a horrible pause in my heartbeat when I thought he was going to say flexibility flexibility is a word that I would ban from the English English language it means that I want to do something with my church but I haven't quite decided what yet but flexibility sounds really good what it actually means is piles of chairs at the back of the church it actually means the front of the church hasn't been quite sorted out so we're using an altar that we've ordered out of a catalogue which looks quite nice doesn't it but nothing has been thought through. Adaptability is about taking the building you have and making it speak, making it work, and making it function for today. And that is the inheritance we have of buildings that have functioned for the moment that they are in history. And that we have to fight for that you have to fight for, unless we want the Simon Jenkins of this world simply to turn our buildings into nice places that we visit on a spring afternoon, when some nice person has unlocked it.
0: Thank you both very much indeed. 20 or so minutes that we have left will be taken up with comments or questions from you and uh, responses from our two speakers. If you'd like to say something, could you please indicate and the rector will bring you the necessary microphone for making yourself heard. While you're thinking then, could I ask, A question um, about pews. Sir Roy, you clearly think that if parish churches, country parish churches are to adapt, there's going to be several bonfires of Victorian pews up and down the country.
1: Now they're going to antique shops.
0: Right. (laughs) And then to pubs, presumably after that. Mm -hmm. How do you think the church should uh, respond or adapt the current system to permit that sort of adaptability, let alone flexibility.
2: I thought, Mr Caddick, you were a very nice person until you mentioned the word pews. Um, I think it's very interesting, the, the sticking points in any kind of process of adaptability. And fascinatingly enough, seating is one of those. And it is always around the argument between the lobby that wishes to preserve that which perhaps is a complete set of seating, where can we think of, I mean, if you think of a, of a Wren church that wasn't bombed, that has its entire pewing intact, and Sir Roy comes along and says, this would make a wonderful place for a badminton court for this village, which it desperately needs. And he proves it because he produces for you a badminton club with 36 members now which wins community and use of the building or Mr Wren's pews and as chairman of the council for the care of churches I sit unbelievably uncomfortably with a leg either side of that particular fence and I think From my point of view, I would have to say, Jeremy, that I would have to consider each of those cases on its own merits. So if you presented me with a Wren building with all its furniture intact inside, untouched since the 17th century, I would have to say, I'm sorry, heritage wins here and badminton loses. If you showed me a building in which it was possible to do a wonderful Anglican compromise, that is to say, retain something of the past, but also provide the badminton court, I would happily go down there. Equally, I would happily see the removal of a whole set of pews, which were really of no value whatsoever.
1: Can can I add something? Can can I just add something very quickly there? Um, Yes, I would go along with what the Dean has said, but unlike in the case of either country houses, or indeed gardens, Churches have more committees deciding things, and this is this is it, the list is simply appalling. You've got the Diocesan List, you've got English Heritage, you've got um, the Council for the Care of Churches, the Historic Churches Trust, the Friends of Friendless Churches. I mean, what a title! Talk about falling on your own spear, and the list goes on and on. I remember doing a list; it ran on for uh, 16 lines of a paragraph, and it didn't didn't finish the list. In other words, it is very difficult to alter anything in a church. You can alter something in a... Move a country house or a garden on, but you try and move a church on. And really, all of that, there's there's just too many... And then there's the Georgians, the Victorians, the 20th Century Society, full of people who never go worship in a church. But, boy, they're down there if you touch the Victorian hassocks.
2: As one who still bears the scars between his shoulder blades of, of appearing before chancellors trying to persuade the Georgian Society or the Victorian Society that they are wrong, I, I would agree with you entirely. I think the system is far too complicated and far too many people have a finger in the pie in and in a pie in which they put no financial input at all.
3: Good afternoon, my name is Chris and I'm a member of the Iona community and The Iona community is a community that is out here, not in there somewhere. The Christian church is also a community, and a community that has built up over time of being out there, not in the building, of involving the people in our parish system. Quite often when one has the annual PCC meeting to elect people, and we look at the electoral we have included on that electoral roll, those non-Christians who also live in the parish. And one of the reasons for that is to be inclusive. And the church is to be inclusive. It is God incarnate out there to work in the community that it is. And the building should be open for use for everybody and to draw people in. You can't just open the door and expect people to walk in for no interest. The work is out there, and doing the work out there will draw the people in. And surely it is the parish church system and the parishioners and the priest whose duty is not to just do the service for one hour a week in a church, but the rest of the time to be out there and to be doing the work out there. Well,
1: I wouldn't... That's a very nice idea. But if you have 15 churches landed on you, um, you're being out there going around 15 churches, let alone going out there beyond them. But I take your point. The dean would be more appropriate
4: respondent.
2: I think there's an interesting point to be made here, um, and a point that you can often find in places like Norfolk and Suffolk, where you'll find a highly successful church, in inverted commas, that's well looked after with four or five people. And the next door parish has four or five people and the church is not well looked after. And a lot depends simply on the character of the people who happen to be in that parish at that moment and go back in 50 years and it could have swapped one way and the other. So a lot of of the the, the whole business of how we use, how we develop, how we interpret our buildings depends on the people who are actually there at this moment. We can do any amount of encouraging, we can do any, any amount of, you know, chivying, but if the will isn't there, I've just been to Dorset, and the one building I wanted to get into, which was an immensely famous building in the middle of Dorset, quite clearly had a congregation who had decided to keep the building locked. Around it, were other buildings which were wide open, welcoming. Everything that was valuable was locked away, so we could get in, we could see what we wanted to see. The one spectacular building was locked for no reason at all, other than the fact that the will wasn't there.
1: Thank you. I thought Sir Roy was going to put forward the case for state funding of churches. He didn't even mention it. Is that a way forward or not? Well, the question is about state funding. Well, I'm, uh, I'm away from the facts and figures, but they're quite diminutive. I mean, most of the churches are kept going by enormous voluntary effort and the support of the local community. I mean, I, I mean well, we only have to look at the, the money going to the Olympics to know that already uh, the chop to people like English Heritage and the Lottery Fund is already substantial, and I don't. I think you will also find that. Uh, and let's not to say the Lottery Fund hasn't been generous to churches; it has. And normally now there is a, a tag attached to it that it must be available for the whole community. You, you then get into the problem of multiculturalism, don't you? And to be seen to be favouring the Church of England rather than any other faith group. I think it. And also the other thing, we've seen it, haven't we, happen in the last 10 years, the boxes you have to tick. How many disabled come? How many of the Asian community come? How many of this community come? (laughs) How many does this? And it it, it is utterly, it's paralytic. I think if the churches can survive without signing up to something which would, I think, uh, you know, health and safety is, the health and safety is produced, bills for churches on on an appalling level. So I think anything which can be kept free of the state, I'd cheer. Just keep the parish churches away from getting into the death grip of the government.
2: The Bishop of London has a great line, that the Church of England is the most disestablished, established church in the whole of Europe. (laughs) Just think about it, you have to concentrate on that one. The most uh, disestablished, established church in the sense that um, the government pays virtually nothing other than what it gives back in VAT um, to the, the churches. Um, if I was to be uh, controversial, which of course I won't be, I would point out that you know since it was announced that the Olympics were to come to the UK, the amount of money going to English Heritage, I believe, has been capped. The amount of money coming from the lottery has been capped. And where is it going? Well, just look at the name of the ministry, culture, media, and sport. And that's where you'll find support for the built heritage. Now, in a world in which to support Christianity is not a thing that you do, and a government which is not actually very keen at all in supporting anything that has the label Christian attached to it, then our parish churches are not going to come very high up a list of contributions equally I agree with it's amazing and it? you should have chosen somebody else to stand in this pulpit uh, so Roy and I stand together I think if we can keep out of the clutches of government we keep out of the clutches of all those things that you are required to do if I give you money you know have you made sure that can you tick all these boxes can you because more and more and more if you get a grant then you have to have to prove certain things. And that's just too much. Our, our, our volunteers have got enough to do with looking after the building. Thank you.
5: Um, my name's Sheila Cameron. I've had um, a certain amount of responsibility for making difficult decisions in relation to adapting churches because I was a diocesan chancellor, um, in particular the Chancellor of London for a number of years. Uh, I now live in the country, in Sussex, and I attend a grade one church. And uh, some of what Sir Roy has said this afternoon strikes a strong chord because I call them the Saga Brigade at our church. But also what the Dean said is that when some of them drop off their perches, we get some more saga coming. <laughs> and um, actually, uh, although I'm of retirement age, um, I have a certain youthful approach. And we have, for the first time, the history of the little grade one church, which seats 72 people, had a concert in the summer with a little uh, bun fight outside afterwards for the whole community. Very popular and we're asked to do it again. And what I wanted to know from both our speakers is this idea that people will not adapt to change, surely it has to be confronted, and you have to actually say, get on and do something different. It's wrong with all the churches we have, the rural churches which we have, are part of the Church of England, which is the established church in this country. As long as the Church of England is the established church, it is that building which people turn to in their hour of need. They go to it. They go to some churches and light candles. They may not attend the regular services, but that building represents God in the community. They also happily go there for weddings. And the General Synod, in its wisdom, is going to, well, has passed legislation, which now has to go through Parliament, To widen the opportunity for more people to get married in churches we had a young couple last summer who regularly came for six months because they wanted to get married in our church and they had no particular connection with the parish and they were prepared to do that and they came every sunday and they've been back since they got married because we did our best to welcome now, there's a huge amount that can be done, and I'm sorry, Sir Roy, I do not agree with you that we've just got to get rid of a lot of these little churches. We have, I entirely agree, got to bring back more life into them, but surely it's for all of us, whatever our age, and particularly we do hope some of the younger people will look, look at it the same way, to, to bring back life into it can be done so easily. Uh, but we ha- may I also take up the time just to mention another point? which you hit upon upon, uh, Sir Roy, and that is a very important point, and the Dean's just touched on it. In 1983, I think it was, the Church of England first accepted grant aid, which was a contribution from the state to help towards the upkeep of buildings. At the time, those of us who were around at that time said we're in for difficulties. As soon as you accept money from someone else, that someone else is going to tell you what you can and you can't do with your buildings and that has come to pass. We have English heritage, we have the statutory immunity societies, the Victorian society, the Society for Protection of Ancient Buildings, the Georgian society, the 20th century society, and those are state-funded bodies and they have a say over what happens in our churches. We also have our own system of control and regulation And every diocese has its own diocesan advisory committee, which advises on changes. And we have the national body chaired by the Dean, the Council of the Care of Churches. But how do we untangle ourselves? Because people say, why don't we have more state aid? The more state aid you receive, the more you are kowtowing to the views of conservationists who have not got adaptability at the top of their agenda.
1: Well, that's a very long and complicated statement. Um, I think one I'd already listed off a great deal of all those societies and that sort of thing and that really needs urgently needs sorting out. The amount of money that actually comes, as you know, uh, you sat on all those committees uh, from English Heritage and the other things, is it, very, very limited. And I can, I can remember the, when the money for churches first came through, it was as a result of the 1977 exhibition at the v 3 weeks after, for the first time, government produced some money, but the majority, as you know, comes from elsewhere the extraordinary thing i was talking to an archdeacon of two or three weeks ago and he said yes we hold these meetings all the church wardens come and we we say to them look you are just going to the cliff edge year by year going where you're just going to drop off and they all agree and they say oh we've got to go back and change things and he said every year it's the same they go back and they alter nothing now the only thing this goes back into really what something the dean was saying um, uh, the decentralization of people working I mean the strength of the village, the village is now made up of commuters, second home owners and the retired. Well, they they have time to give to the building and to the church, and they also have considerable financial resources. It's a different constituency, but that has to be built upon. But there is no mechanism that I know, or maybe you do, to force church wardens and to, to force people to make a decision as to what they're going to do with that building. And that, 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 that's what I mean by there's a kind of gutlessness about the Church of England. I mean, there is no central directive. in the case of a Catholic Church, if it falls below a certain number, the key is turned on the door, and it's shut and demolished a year later. But there is no such, and I would hate that sort of thing for the, the, the C of E, but there is, there is no central force that can actually make people reach a decision about what they're going to do. And the result is, of course, is drift. It just drifts. Also, another thing which, uh, uh, up until very recently, I understood that clergy were moved on in the Church of England the whole time, therefore either they were very reluctant to start something up because they would be one minute in Budley Sultan and the next minute up in Scunthorpe, and what was the point of doing anything in the first place anyway? And you really have to have clergy in post for a period of 10 years to see any major change through. Bear in mind, when you meet people, you will know about this, and you ask them, well, how did you achieve that change? Well, some of the changes, which are quite modest, like taking two pews out or altering an organ loft or something, go back into the mist of time. it take five or six years to get the permission through, let alone do it. Perhaps the dean can answer more on this.
2: I've always wanted a job in Budley Salton, actually, but nobody's offered it to me. <laughs> or Sidmouth, prefer- preferably. Um, the, the only thing I want to say uh, about the Dean of the Arches comment is that I think we're, we're probably just about coming out at the end of a set of clergymen and clergywomen within the Church of England who deeply believed that the buildings were an encumbrance rather than an aid to mission. And I think we are... We we, we suffered that from about the 70s through. Somehow that our buildings hindered the mission of the church. And I hope what we're actually beginning to get through now is that in fact they are considerable aids to mission and not hindrances. And we need to work very hard at that. That they... um, Sorry for those of you who have heard the lecture that I've given. They aren't albatrosses which have been uh, stuck round our necks, that, that stop us doing the work of God, they are actually there as a tool for mission and can be used as such. Now that is going to take a long while to, to, to happen, but once again we're back to the people. We're back to Sheila's parish where before even to have a concert was completely out of the, you know, out, of, out of anybody's idea, but it's happened now and will probably happen again. And it's that process, which is the Church of England grinding at its slowest, but grinding all the same, that we we need to get out there. Yes, I mean, as, as a Dutch deacon, I was unbelievably frustrated by those clergymen, but those church wardens that nodded and said, "Oh yes, we'll do that," and you went back to do your triennial visitation or whatever. And they hadn't even dusted where you would run your finger along the last time you were there you could still (laughs) see your finger mark in the dust but then there was the other place that you went and for me um, the triumph for me was actually seeing the front cover of church building about three years ago and it was a toulon building somewhere in london i can't actually remember now and it was spectacularly decorated and i was the poor person who was sent from the Council for the Care of Churches to do the initial visit there. And the people wanted to get rid of the building. Oh, look at this wretched building. And I can remember saying, wouldn't it be lovely to put colour back into this building? And 17 years later, it was on the front of church building, fully back to what Mr. Toulon had intended as its colour scheme. Everything that i had suggested about the seating had been done, the font had been moved. I thought I do wish I'd kept a diary because all of that would have been and I could have sent it to the vicar and saying so glad you've achieved this only 17 years but but it happened and I think that that business of the Church of England grinding slow of English people grinding slow we have to accept the change will happen we'll get there in the end and those of us who need to encourage need to encourage day by day hour by hour. Thank you.
0: I think we have time for for one more quick question.
4: (coughs) Thank you, my name is uh, John Matthew and I'm formerly the Dean of Ripon. And um, I wanted the point that Sir Roy made earlier not to be lost, uh, namely that the opportunities provided by our buildings and the use to which they've been put, this is not a new phenomenon whatsoever. In fact, it was commonplace in the Middle Ages. There was something happened in the late 16th and early 17th centuries with regard to the parceling up of religion in one compartment of life and and separating it out from the rest of life, which was an aberration, frankly. And um, the idea of these sorts of debates, of concerts, of Christmas fairs, of uh, all sorts of community activities uh, would have been unthinkable, um, except that they took place in the church, Um, from (coughs) law courts to marriages, which were considered rather a secular uh, business in in those days. Um, I mean, that is a point that is uh, it's not a question of innovation and change. In some respects, it's a looking back to um, those times when the purpose for which the building was put up in the 12th or 13th century um, is being fulfilled, perhaps for the first time in uh, 500 years. Mm.
0: Briefly, could I ask each of you what you think about this, this aberration, this compartmentalization of
2: church and secular life. The most spectacular moment in the history of Portsmouth Cathedral was when the Cathedral ladies moved the Christmas fair into the nave of the Cathedral because they had been crushed against the wall the previous year because so many people came to the fair that the, st- the stalls were, were pushed back against the hall wall. And so therefore the change was made because they didn't wish to be crushed against the wall anymore. Twice the amount was made when they moved into the nave. Um, I am therefore one who thinks that we need to think outside the box as far as the use of our buildings are concerned.
1: Yes. Can, can I just quickly add to that? I think again, see, I think cathedrals are in the vanguard of where we are. and. Uh, Last year, Hereford Cathedral had an enormous flower festival, all the pews were taken up. The whole of the city was in there for the opening, champagne and canopies up and down the nave, firework display afterwards. And that was exactly as it should be, bringing together the whole community in an activity. I don't think you can do that with every parish church, but I certainly think you can do it with, with with a lot of them. I mean, people still get horrified at the idea of putting a lavatory in a church. Well, how, do, how on earth do you exist without a lavatory? but people think somehow you're desecrating the building. It's the most extraordinary kind of ideas get stuck into people's head about sacred, you know, a kind of uh, profanation of sacred space. Um, no, I think there is a future, and I, 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 I think that the, the, the cathedrals are in the vanguard of the of, of the direction in which in which a lot of the parish churches should go and as i said I, I think there is a move to what i call centers of excellence people get in we live in the consumer age you get in your car you don't walk to your parish church you go to the church of your choice thank you
0: the um the thought that the future of england's churches is champagne and canapes strikes me as a very hopeful note <laughs> on which to end uh, could i thank both our speakers and all of you thank you very much And before you go, can I tell you about uh, the next Cheapside Debate, which is next month on the 26th of February, when we'll be considering uh, Anglican union with Rome. Is it our destiny or a disaster? Thank you.